Well, good morning again, everyone. This is kind of our Sabbath school set up for the day, and uh, we have a bit to cover, so how about we bow our heads for prayer to get started. Gracious Father, we are once again thankful to be here on your Sabbath day, and we just ask that you're that, that we tap into your spirit and your source that can give us the strength that we need, not only for this presentation, but so that the message can be clear, uh, helpful, and encouraging. And uh, we just thank you for, again for this time. We pray in Jesus' name, amen. Amen. Good morning. Good morning. The date was December 28, 1978. Does this date ring a bell with anyone here? December 28, 1978. Yes. The flight was United Airlines Flight 173. I'm holding here a Lufthansa plane. I think it's a Dreamliner, but it's for a point of an illustration. My little friend Andrew is letting me borrow this this morning for the story. United Airlines Flight 173. There were 189 people on board. The crew was one of the most experienced crew in the airline industry. Captain McBroom, 52-year-old, had been flying for United Airlines for 27 years. His first officer had over 13,000 hours flight time, very experienced first officer. The flight engineer was also very experienced. It was a routine flight from Stapleton Airport in Denver, that doesn't exist anymore, to Portland Airport. The flight took off with plenty of fuel to make the whatever that is, two hour, two and a half hour flight from Denver to Portland. And as the flight's coming along, everything's fine. Nothing's out of the normal. The weather in Portland in December was actually perfectly clear. So if you're from the Pacific Northwest, you're gonna go, oh, that's a bit of an unusual day for Portland in December. And they're coming in, they begin their descent into Portland Airport. And the captain, actually would have been the first officer, engages the landing gear. But unlike what usually happens on airplanes, where you typically hear the landing gear come down and it's like, and then it goes in, this landing gear went, and unbeknownst to the crew, it broke, because it released so hard, it broke the microsensor that went from the landing gear to the cockpit. And so the light in the cockpit that indicates the landing gear was down failed to turn on because it was broken. In the now, the landing gear was down, but the crew didn't know that it was down. And the airplane started to yaw a little bit. The captain began to get concerned. This is a picture of maybe this is a picture of the airplane that they were flying. This is a Douglas DC-8 60 series. And so, for the next hour, the crew tried to troubleshoot to ensure that the landing gear on this airplane was down. They got put in a holding pattern around Portland. The entire hour they were flying around Portland, the airport was in sight. The sun started to set, it was around 5 something in the evening, so if you're from that area, you know it's well dark by this point. And they're flying around, and they're flying around, and they're trying everything. The captain is trying everything to figure out if the landing gear is down. What he wasn't paying attention to was the fuel. And they kept flying, and they kept circling, and they kept circling, and the flight engineer starts realizing that they're going to have a bigger problem on their hands pretty soon. 
You can land an airplane without landing gear. It's not the greatest idea, but it is possible to land an airplane without landing gear. It's a whole lot harder to land an airplane without fuel. And so they're circling and circling, and the captain is becoming obsessed by figuring out if his landing gear is down because he is one of the best pilots in the industry, and he wants to make sure that he's landing his plane safely. The flight engineer pipes up and says, hey, we're running low on fuel. Uh, we probably should think about bringing this plane down, but the captain doesn't hear him because he's so focused on solving this problem. So they circle, and they circle, and they circle. This plane has two engines. The DC-8 had four engines. All of a sudden, an engine goes out because they're running out of fuel. And then a second engine is going out. And the flight engineer and the co-pilot are trying to communicate to the captain, but they don't have the language that they need. And they don't feel confident in putting themselves forward and telling the captain, we got to get the plane down now. Because that wasn't how the industry worked back in 1978. Six miles from the airport, flight 173 runs out of fuel. And lands, crash lands, in a wooded suburban neighborhood six miles from the airport outside of Portland. Ten people die, including the flight engineer and the head flight attendant. Now, we would call this a failure. And that's what is considered in the aviation industry, a failure. This is a failure. But you know what? The aviation industry is rather unique among human systems because the aviation industry believes in learning from failure. Amen. They put, in fact, and this actually happened only 10 years prior to United Flight 173 crashing. In 1967, it became mandatory to put what they call black boxes, or the technical term would be flight recorders, flight data recorders, in every single commercial airliner. And why do they put black boxes in airplanes? So that they can figure out what happened when an airline crashed, especially if nobody's alive to tell the story. Because the airline industry wants to learn from failures. But what about us? Today we're going to be talking about black box thinking. And the definition, the definition that we're going to be using is this. The willingness and tenacity to investigate the lessons that exist when we fail. Learning from errors rather than being threatened by them. And we're going to start exploring how this black box thinking that the aviation industry uses can apply to our experience in agriculture, in home gardening, in homeschooling, and in country living. So I'm going to need some helpers. And I am looking for children between the ages of 10 to 12. I only need five of you, so if you're between 10 and 12, and you are good listeners, I want you to put up your hand, because I need you to come up and help me. Okay, I see one back here, two back here, three, 10, 10 to 12. I've got three people oh, coming. Four, we need one more. We have got all guys, I want a girl. A girl who's between 10, I only need five, so don't come up unless I point it at you. Okay, let's see, we've got, I guess I didn't get a girl. Okay, guys, are you good listeners? Uh, sorry, hand came up a little bit late or I didn't see it come up. Are you guys good listeners? Are you sure? All right, follow me. Okay, what we're going to do today is we want you young people to help us find something. Come back this way, a little more, a little more, a little more, a little more. 
We want you to find something in this auditorium called a black box. Did you just hear that word about a black box? What was a black box used for? Uh, to record stuff on the airplane? Yes, it's a flight recorder that records all the information of everything that's happening on that flight. All verbal communication, everything is in that black box. That's why it's so important that they are on the airplane. And if the airplane goes down, that's why it's so important they find that black box. Did you see a picture of that black box up there on the screen? What color was it? Red. Red or orange, right? Because the first ones were black and they couldn't find them easily, so they had to make them so they could find them. So we learned from the first mistake that there was the wrong color. But in our room today, look how big this room is. It is gigantic. In this room today, we have a black box that's hidden, and one of you has to, is going to find it. Okay, so have you ever played the game at home called hide the thimble? Okay, moms and dads, hide the thimble. Let's see your hands if, okay. This is an excellent, excellent game to teach perseverance, observation, and diligence. We're gonna do that today, but I'm gonna modify the rules. So since you've never played that, we're gonna just play it a little differently than we would if you were at my house. So we didn't hide a thimble in this room, aren't you glad? Because the thimble's pretty small. But we did hide a black box. So what I'm going to do is, who, who would like to go first? Okay, right here. Now you're not going to get a flag yet. So what you're going to do is you're going to set off into this room any direction you want to go. If you're going the wrong direction, I'm going to say cold, and you must stop there. Do you understand? Stop right where you are. Take a flag and hold it up like this so everybody can see it. And you're gonna be there until I tell you not to be there anymore, okay? So, the rest of you, when I say he's cold and he's stuck, what does that tell the rest of you? That we shouldn't go over there. That he went the wrong way. Very good. Okay, you guys tracking? Then whoever wants to volunteer next, you will set off. And if you end up going the wrong way, I'm gonna say cold, and you must stop there, and I will give you a flag, and you must hold it up. So you have to pay attention to each person who's going in line. So what is your name? Oliver. Oliver. Okay, Oliver. In this grand room is a black box. You may go any direction to find it. Right now. Cold. Hold that high. Okay, who wants to go next? Okay, what's your name? Titus. Titus, Oliver and Titus. You can go any direction. If you're going the wrong way, I'm going to say cold and you must stop, okay? Cold. Okay, well, you did quite the hike. Hold this flag high. Okay, who's a third person? Okay, come on up here. You boys can kind of follow me around now. Okay, it's somewhere in this room. You have to pick a direction and you start going. If you are heading for the right direction, I'm not gonna say anything, but if you go the wrong direction, I'm gonna say cold. What is your name? Joshua. Joshua, okay, go ahead, Joshua. Cold. <laughs> Who wants to be next? What's your name? Anthony. Anthony. Are you learning? Are you seeing anything here? Yeah. Okay, Anthony. Go for it. Cold. Whoa. Hold that flag high. All right. Last but not least here, we have... Yoshiah. Yoshia. Did I say that right? Okay. Now what do you see? Do you know which way you want to go? Yes. Okay, go ahead. Cold. Okay, now I'm going to start giving you a little bit more hints here. Now I'm going to say, actually I'm going to use you because you got the closest. If you come back to me, all right, step over here. So we, we have a flag that's cold here, a flag that's cold here. Hold them up, guys. Hold up in the air. A flag that's cold there and a flag that's cold way back there. So, 
It must be somewhere. So now here's what we're going to do. And this is how you play it at home. You don't give any clues. Everybody has to look for that thimble. But when, if it's taken too long, like we might be taking a little bit long right now, uh, then we start saying, you're getting warmer. You're getting warmer. You're getting warmer. That means that you are really getting close. Okay. Yeah. And then eventually you're going to be so hot. You're going to find it. I'll hold your flag for you. So you know, it's where somewhere in Okay, kind of there. So go ahead. You must look carefully, diligent. Remember, it's hidden. It's not in plain sight. But what color is it? Red or orange. Well, we really hit a black box. Oh, okay. Sorry, a black box. <laughs> okay. A uh, little cool there. Getting a little warmer. Really warm. Real, oh, no, getting colder. Really warm. Getting hot. Whoa, whoa. Did you find something? A black box. He found a black box. Good job. Would you take Great that to job. my husband? Thank you very much. And boys, thank you so much. Hey, listen. At the end of Sabbath school, you can bring me your flag there. Thank you. At the end of Sabbath school, I'd like all five of you boys to come up because we want to do a picture together, okay? Is that good? All right, we have to wait till after we're off the timer. Thank you very much for being good helpers. Okay, so the question is, there was five boys. Does anybody remember, other than, other than somebody who knows the name of the first boy, if they knew him already, what was the first boy's name? Oliver, Oliver right. Now let me ask you this. When, when Elaine started the game and there were five boys... Oliver went first. How many of you thought Oliver would find the black box? Anybody here think Oliver would actually find the black box? Well, why not? He didn't have enough information, did he? Okay, how about the second boy? Did you think the second boy would get it? No, right? Maybe a few people. How about the third one? Maybe. Fourth? He was close. He was actually very close. I mean, he, he got quite close, right? But do you see the process? The idea that when, when we're talking about, now, we're not going to tell Oliver that he failed, right? Because you're saying, well, it's a game. And he, Oliver went first because they had to learn, in essence, from Oliver, right? Yeah. They were all looking at Oliver, and so they know if Oliver went that way and it was cold, he's going this way. So here's our thing. We're go we have he, what they found... What he found in the black box were tools. So we're talking about tools today when it comes to failure. Because if any of you have ever grown a garden, or if any of you have ever probably tried homeschool, or you've even thought about moving to the country, guess what happens? There's a degree of failure, and sometimes it's quite a bit. And so what we want to talk about with the first tool is how about we, in our minds, we get to a point where we think we should expect failure. How about that? Is that something that we're taught? We normally don't teach people to say expect failure, but what if expect failure was actually part of the process? Let me give you an illustration here. Let's go to the next slide. So, this is a slide maybe a few of you have seen. I used it in one of my classes this week. But this is oftentimes what we think of success, right? We start down here, and it's just kind of like an elevator ride straight to the top. I mean, sometimes we, we actually think that's the way it's going to work. But in reality, that's what success looks like. Right now, all those little squiggly parts in there, those are all the things that are what some people might think of as failure. But what we're going to learn today is that actually that's part of the process. And if we can wrap our minds around some of these tools that we're going to be learning, it actually makes your journey much more understandable. And you're not so maybe critical and judgmental about even your own self. Let me give you another example. How many of you like strawberries? Okay, yeah, see, strawberries are very popular. And a few years ago on our little farm, we actually grew strawberries for the first time. And 
honestly, for the first time out, we thought they went really well. In fact, there's a picture of, of Alan and Aubrey with a nice toad of strawberries, and boy, things were just, just going so well, and we were selling good strawberries, and people were enjoying the strawberries, but there was one thing that happened that we didn't, I'm just telling you, we didn't expect it, and it happened to be Andrew. Yeah, Andrew showed up one night. Now, this was before we had, now this is how you see how we treat raccoons. My daughter goes out and puts water out for him because she thinks he's a little hot in the cage. And so, uh, anyway, but needless to say, we didn't have a cage out the first time Andrew visited us. And we noticed that Andrew started, like, enjoying a little bite off of not just one strawberry, not two strawberries, but Andrew went all the way down the row, it seemed like, and took a bite out of every ripe strawberry on the plant. And uh, if you've ever grown strawberries, you may have experienced this bit of a failure. So, well, so my bright idea was we'll get a cage. We'll catch in Andrew and we'll relocate Andrew somewhere and we'll take care of the problem. So we did that, got Andrew out of the way, but then Barney showed up. <laughs> this is Andrew's brother or cousin or something like that. And we thought, well, maybe it's just Andrew and Barney. We've got these guys taken care of now. Good thing we'll relocate Barney, Andrew. They'll be together. They'll be happy. And then Charlie showed up. And then, da oh, David, their cousin, showed up. <laughs> Yeah, the possum shows up because somehow the word got out that the, the strawberries were pretty easy. So we're going like, look, the cage thing isn't really doing the trick here. We're catching the animals, but it's after they're eating all the strawberries. And so after David, of course, there comes Ernie and Frank and Zane. Yeah, this is Zane. This was, we had a bunch of stuff. But, you know, Zane, the problem with Zane was is that, well, if you notice, there's something about this picture that was different than the rest of them. Do you detect anything that's actually different in this picture? He's up and about. Huh? Yeah, you see those little white stripes, uh, strips of coming across there? That was our effort of putting up an electric fence because we thought if we could put an electric fence up, then, you know, Andrew, Barney, all these guys, they're not going to be coming in anymore. But somehow, Zane not only goes through the electric fence, he eats a bunch of strawberries, and then he goes to get the feed in the cage and it catches him. But the problem is, is the, the cage is on the inside of the fence. See, he shouldn't be in that cage. We just, we put that there to see, well, was our fence working? Well, guess what? It wasn't working. So, how many failures did we have? I mean, that we, we at least documented. I mean, I can tell you there were other ones that we caught that we didn't document on camera, but those were all different critters, all of them. So the thought is, is that by expecting this, if we would have been more in the mind of like expecting it and being okay, maybe we don't expect it, but once it actually happened to say, okay, we need to do something different here. You know, it's like we have the data now. What do we do next? And so we're going to move into the next tool, which, oh, and we're going to, we want to just review a proverb that kind of ties in with this. The ear that hears the rebukes of life, maybe the failures of life, right? And we're not talking about because the raccoon's eating our raccoons. I'm not talking, this is not a moral sin. Okay, we're talking about just the failure that happens in life, right? What do we do with that? But the ear that hears the rebukes of life will abide among the wise. So we don't want to ignore these things, and that kind of ties in, I think, to our next tool. Ah, and Tom's going to tell us about tool number All two. All right, so and for a moment, I'm not going to talk about gardening. That was a great illustration. And I wanted to say something to you during that, but my mic wasn't up, so now it's up. That was a great illustration with the strawberry and Ernie and Frank and all those, all those critters. But this, the illustration I want to use is my wife and I, when we got married, before we ever had children, we said, we want to live in the country. We want to raise our family in the country. 
And we were thankful because a lot of the people we knew didn't have any idea of this. And God brought this to us very strong, had a strong desire. But we unintentionally, okay, so here we're talking about failure, unintentionally began to ignore it because we got involved in our careers in the busyness of our medical careers. We looked around for, well, a short time for a country property, but the way our jobs worked, I was in radiology, she was in nursing. I had call, she had call. And we had to be a certain distance from the hospital and we couldn't find anything in the country that was reasonable. And so, what are we gonna do, quit our jobs? No, that's <laughs> not then anyway. <laughs> and so, we just got into life, actually lived outside, you know, in a kind of rural community, but then life got busy, and over the next few years, children started to come along, and we were ignoring the message that God gave to us. We cannot ignore that message. Now, we've got a proverb that's going to pop up here. He who keeps instruction is in the way of life, but he who refuses correction goes astray. Now, we weren't really intentionally, like your illustration, you weren't trying to just let critters in, right? Let them eat. But sometimes life just rolls. I have a saying that if we're not careful, life runs over the top of us. We begin to be controlled by our circumstances. We begin to flow with whatever we need to do just to survive in life. Not to thrive, not to be on top of it, preemptive, but just getting through life. And God woke us up one night. This is the short story. My wife and I, we both were very busy. My wife was, you know, going toward her master's degree, very educationally career-oriented. And one Friday night, we were down in our little basement by our fireplace. It was a quiet Friday evening which I hate to say, but in all honesty, it was very rare for us to have a quiet evening. Here's our two little girls, little toddlers. We're there, and it just seemed like such a beautiful, quiet evening. And that night, and I know, of course, now that it was the Lord putting this in my heart, but I turned to my wife and I said, Honey, what is the most important thing you can accomplish in this life? Now, in that moment... When I asked that question, and I was not planning to ask that question, but as I looked around at our children, the quietness of the evening, you know, one of the things that many of us lack in this busy world that we live in is time to be still and know that He is God. Yes, we believe in Him. Yes, we surrender to Him, hopefully. Yes, we want Him to guide us, but sometimes we, even in our devotional life, are moving so quickly that as inspiration says, we pass through the presence of Christ too quickly, taking our burdens with us. We were having a few quiet moments that night, and in those quiet moments, God gets access to our hearts. And when I asked her that question, I didn't know what she was going to say. I didn't know if she was going to say, well, I'm pushing towards my master's degree, but it wouldn't have surprised me. You know, when he asked me that question, my mind just reflected over the evening. And I know it had to be God's presence and spirit there in our family because it was one of the happiest, quietest, most peaceful nights we had together in our family for, for really months. Our girls were getting along. We were, we were restful, contented. They were happy. They liked each other. They liked us. They kind of even you know, were obedient. And <laughs> <laughs> a rare moment. <laughs> and it just struck me. What we had just experienced over the last half hour, 45 minutes, was so different, so rare. And in that moment of time, I said, to see our girls receive the crown of life, to see them in the kingdom of heaven. It just poured out of me. That's not where my mind was thinking, but those are the words that God put in my heart to speak at that moment. After pondering for just an odd amount of time, a brief amount of time, but just pondering that question, 
to see our children in the kingdom of God. And friends, I don't think we ponder that enough. Amen. We're so busy in life, we just rush on. So that's what I shared with you that night. When she shared that, I hate to say this, I mean, we were very active in our church. We were a you know, very young family, but very vibrantly active in a 1,300-member church, doing Bible studies, doing all the right things. But when she said that, it just really hit me. And I had an awkward moment of silence that was very necessary. And then I turned to her and I said, then something's got to change in our lives. And I paused and, I, and then I said, and that's, that's us. We have got to change. If we really want to see our children receive the crown of life, if we want to really hear the words, well done, thou good and faithful servant, something's got to change. Our, our lives are being will run by the busyness of life. We're run by other people's agenda. We're run by our circumstances. We need to let God run our lives. And that night we got on our knees. I'll never forget this moment. It was such a beautiful moment. We put our little girls in their footy pajamas. I, I always say this because it's such a precious memory. Have you seen those little toddler pajamas that have the feet in them and everything and they zip up to the neck and they're so cuddly and cozy and soft. We put our girls between us as we knelt together. We put our arms around our girls and each other. And that night, I made a prayer of commitment. There was nothing planned about this evening except by the grace and power of God. And that evening, I said, Oh, Father, we will do anything. We will give up anything. We will go wherever you ask us to go. We will do whatever you want us to do to hear the words, Well done, thou good and faithful servant, and to see the crown of life placed upon the heads of our children. Amen. And from that night, nothing was ever the same in our family. It was the beginning of a journey that led us, and I thank God he doesn't reveal everything Sorry, I won't poke you with the same. <laughs> the tools. Yeah, Tom, maybe you should just put that thing. <laughs> yeah. Here, right here. <laughs> but, you know, thank God he doesn't just pour it out in a full dose and we just see what's ahead. But that was the beginning of a change that for us was so dramatic, so radical, but so God-led. We left the suburbs of Chicago. We left our medical careers. This was not a hasty decision, and this is not the whole time to tell the story. But I tell you, God led us from the multitude and the intensity of life to the mountains of Montana. It was one of four states at that time. It seems like another century. But back there, 37 years ago... You could only homeschool in four places in the United States of America. Everywhere else was illegal. And unless you had a teacher certificate, you could go to jail for teaching, thinking you could teach your children. God led us to that place, and what a journey, having no idea what God had in mind except one thing, and that is, that God wanted to answer the prayer of being able to hear those words, well done, and to see our children receive the crown of life. And when that focus came, that focus became a practical focus on the first mission field. Everybody in this audience today knows that the first mission field is what? The home. And yet we know that, and many of us, like ourselves, we blow right past that mission field with the intensity the earnest zeal to reach outside of the home. And many of us have missed that calling. And God does not want us to ignore it. Well, there's a lot more we could say on that, but I have to take a tool out of the bag here. 
Oh, wow, look at that. Almost as sharp as mine. <laughs> Why are you guys picking such a violent-looking tool over there? <laughs> I didn't look, but uh, I have my defense. <laughs> so the point of this is that we have all experienced some level of failure in the Christian journey. Is that a fair statement? Amen. And when God moves upon our hearts, we are sincere, we are honest, we are willing we are yielded, but can we still make mistakes? Amen. Do we still face failures? Yes, we do. And it's not because, I mean, there's, there's failures and mistakes because we are intentionally turning our back on it. That's why we had that for number two, you know, don't ignore God's calling on your heart. Every one of us, it's different for us in the room. Some of you are already in the country, but God's calling your heart in another area of your life. Some of you are thinking of moving to the country. God is calling you to your heart in that area. Whatever it is God is putting in your heart, don't ignore it. And then when we choose to venture out with him, just know that it is, he's going to take us on a journey like we have no idea is ahead of us. Amen. It's going to be full of joy, excitement, challenges, hardships, and other kind of trials that we don't like to talk about in the context of following Christ. We think sometimes if we follow Christ, life is going to be easy. But if we look at the life of Christ, we know that we followers of him, we are on the same path. And it is not an easy path, but it is the only way, the happiest way, and the best way. So my tool that I'm going to share with you is that we can learn from others. We have here a very interesting statement by Eleanor Roosevelt. Learn from the mistakes of others. Did you notice the demonstration here with the children? They were, it was a learning experience, right? Okay, he went the wrong way. I don't want to do that. That was a teaching opportunity. Uh -huh. Learn from the mistakes of others because none of us live long enough to make all the mistakes ourselves and figure it out. Is that fair? Amen. I mean, I had two very, I'm blessed, I was blessed with two very wonderful parents. They made mistakes. I learned from them about their mistakes. I thought I was going to parenting. I started making mistakes. Some of the same ones they made, by the way. But I also made my own. So we can learn from the mistakes of others. And not just the mistakes, but we can learn from the success of others as well. And this is important because the Bible is full of examples of failure to success. Failure to success. And we want to look at those characters and see how we plug our lives in to that. And we learn from their failures, but we also learn, more importantly, from their success. So I have here a statement from the... Oh, here is our very first garden. <laughs> We moved about a year later. God had given us a third child who's in my arms right there, little Josiah. He is about five months old there. I'm a little older than that. We are going to plant our first garden. Isn't that a beautiful garden? <laughs> my husband bought a rototiller before we left the suburbs of Chicago, and I bought him a chainsaw as a love gift. <laughs> Very loving gift. <laughs> a steel 056 Magna chainsaw. For yeah, those so of you who use chainsaws, that's like chainsaw. the big daddy of a chainsaw. <laughs> those were our tools that we knew we were going to need. So he rototilled up this, this raw land. Uh, we got our little girls out there. We got some seeds. We have a wheelbarrow. See how gardeners we are? We got a wheelbarrow. We got a shovel. We got rakes. We got seeds. We are ready to go and be successful. We are in the country. Hallelujah. <laughs> what the picture doesn't show clearly is that we are also on the side of a mountain. And this is a hillside. So what do you think happened to our first garden when it rained? It washed down the side of the hill. Those little tender plants, hey, they weren't even, I don't even know if we even saw them, but there was nothing coming up. This soil just washed away because we were inexperienced. We didn't know what we were doing. And I'm the kind of person, 
I'm a learner from other people. I'm not a good learner from books. Sorry, those of you who are book learners. I, that, I just don't learn well from books. And I had all these books, but I wasn't getting the picture. So anyway, we, my husband said, okay, we started going around and looking at people who had beautiful gardens on hillsides. Oh, they terrace them, right? Why didn't we think of that? I mean, that seems obvious. So our next attempt is now we have terrace gardens. Those are real logs my husband cut out of the woods that he and I and our two daughters, ages five and four, took draw knives to peel. That was days and weeks of work. We worked hard, we worked diligently. There's those logs. You see my husband, he's raking. He even put up a fence cord. This is a, this is a little bit later because my girls are bigger there. But he put up this fence and now we're, we've solved the problem. We are no longer gonna have our soil and our plants washed down the hill. But then, as the plants came up, we've discovered another problem. The plants came up and the deer came in. <laughs> <laughs> so, learn from others. I had my husband, we, so we would drive through the valley and along the mountainside. I'd say, stop, stop, look at that garden, look at that garden. It is absolutely beautiful. And I'm not too shy. And so he would stop the car, he's more reserved than I am. And I'd get out and I would just kind of stand on the other side of the fence and stare. <laughs> what are they growing? Look how beautiful it is. Why can't ours be like that? I've got to ask them what they did. And I can tell you that we had several visits with several people, I'll say neighbors within two to three miles of us, because when you're in the country and you're remote, maybe they're two or three miles from a neighbor, half a mile or whatever. We started gleaning from people who knew what they were doing, people who had success. We began to learn from others instead of just trying to do everything on our own. Now, if we would have thought of that a couple of years earlier, we could have saved ourselves some grief. But I tell you, it was such a blessing. And you know what I discovered? When you take interest in someone's garden, they are so appreciative. They have a wealth of information to share with you. They even told me where to buy my seeds, what variety to buy, when to put them in. And don't be tempted in Montana when you get this early, what they call early summer. It's so warm, it's so beautiful, it's 70 degrees, let's go out and put those seeds in the soil. Because the old timers already know it looks nice now, but we still got winter coming. <laughs> and we can get another 6 to 8, 10, 12 inches of snow. And if those things are up, they're gone. So over time, learning from others, as the Proverbs say, the way of the fool is right in his own eyes. We thought we knew what we were doing. But he who heeds counsel is wise and we started seeking counsel from the experienced gardeners and what a difference that made this is our little orchard here this is a second garden area you can see the terracing you can see the trees there even the variety of trees and notice the fence your fence grew the deer don't go over that fence <laughs> the deer could not make it over the fence those rail fences looked really nice in Montana, but they didn't keep the deer out. Now, a story about this fence. The trees were produced. We had two beautiful plum trees. We came home from a ministry trip. We checked out the trees. In a few days, that fruit's going to be perfectly ripe. We're going to have an abundant harvest of Stanley prune plums. We were so excited. So the day came, I sent the little girls out and I said, start picking, because they were so excited they couldn't wait to get in and start picking the fruit. And they came back in the house and I said, mother, there is no fruit on the trees. What do you mean there's no fruit? I just saw it. <laughs> there is fruit. No, mommy, there's no fruit. I, I, I had to go out and see. Tom came out to see. There was hardly a plum to be found because this fence did not keep the bear out. I the, never did build a bear fence, but... <laughs> and it wasn't the mama bear. She sent her cubs in. And they, before they ever exited the garden, there were piles of, of pits and pruny kind of 
debris. <laughs> but that was a rare thing. And then we called somebody with experience to say, okay, the game warden, this is what you got to do. Because once they find out there's food there, they will be back every single year at that same time to get your prunes. So we had to deal with the bear. But we didn't have a problem with the deer. So learn from others, friends. We don't have time to make all the mistakes ourselves. Success comes because we're willing to learn from others. Okay, let's see what... What am I going to get? Oh, wow. Wow, these are dangerous tools. <laughs> Guess somebody's got some real business here. <laughs> All right. So um, my tool is start small. And uh, when we got married and started having kids, I made a commitment that I was going to be there for my kids until they were ready for school. And then I was going to go back to the emergency room to work. <laughs> Um, and that was the only thing I could think of. I mean, that's, that was the culture I was in, and, and I had grew up in the culture as well. I mean, my parents were also in the mission field, and they never quit work. I was always working with them in the mission field. So it just seemed very natural for me to do the same thing. Um, then I observed a neighbor in, in our area, and she walked with her kids, and I wonder what she was doing with the kids and why they were not in school. And she said, well, I homeschool my kids. And I'm like, what is that? <laughs> um, so she was the one that introduced me to it, at least the knowledge of it. And ideas start kind of growing in my head. And I was having so much fun with my own kids. I could not, you know, the... the be away from them all that time was just a little bit, you know, hard to take in. But I was still planning on doing school, uh, on, on sending them to school. Um, and we moved to Oklahoma, and we were about 30 minutes away from the school. That meant that they were going to be in a school bus for 30 minutes and 30 minutes back, or I would drive them. 30 minutes down, come back home, then go back and pick them up and go in, you know. So I'm like, I don't want to do that. And my next door neighbor was a teacher at the school and she goes, you don't have to send her in. Let me, let me show you. And she held my hand. And it looked, it looked a little intimidating. I mean, I'm a nurse, okay? I'm not a teacher. I don't have credentials to teach. Um, do you feel the same way when you started? Absolutely scared to death. I told him I can't do this. I said to my wife, honey, I understand you're a nurse and you don't have a teaching certificate, but I have every confidence in the world that by God's grace, you can teach kindergarten. <laughs> we can do this together. And we will just work at this one step at a time. These little stuff, start it small. <laughs> yeah, I don't know what you told me. Uh, but um, I, uh, <laughs> you definitely encouraged me because we were five minutes from his job and he would come home and eat lunch and then he would go back and you know the, we moved from Texas to Oklahoma so he was gone at 7 o'clock in the morning and come back at 7 o'clock at night I never saw my husband but in the early morning in the evening and weekend so moving to Oklahoma and having him home playing with the kids at noontime, and then if he was a little late, we'd go to his office and swim in the pool while we waited for, I mean, it was a, it was, it was, yeah, it's a good deal, right? So I said, okay, I think I can do this. So I committed to one year at a time. Amen. Start small. And I was ready to do school. <laughs> It looks so official. Yeah, you know, and at one point they had uniforms too. <laughs> I didn't tell you that earlier, but they had uniforms because I didn't want to wash so many clothes. And I grew up in the mission field where we wore uniforms. So it was easy. We knew what we were going to wear every day. And those are the only ones that we got dirty, not everything in the closet, you know. So I thought I was being efficient, you know. So, um, yeah. As time went on, um, I had an assistant helping me doing homeschool. You know, it's just like gradually I started relaxing and letting Aubrey teach. She did reading for Alan. And then 
we moved from the desk to the sofa and a cat on our lap, you know. And it was interesting to see every year that we committed, something would change. We would feel my academic mind start going back in my creative, educational, whatever that God gives us start coming in. And we came very creative with homeschooling. Amen. And we had so much fun. It was like I was set free from the, the box, right? The structure, right? And we began having fun and doing school. And we went a little crazy because now instead of maybe spending all the time in schooling, we did manual schooling, right? And there was so much that we could learn. And those kids, they had so much fun helping. And, you know, to eat something that they prepared, isn't that give them just, I don't know, self-worth, right? Mm -hmm. Like, I can do this. And then um, we, we went even, we started traveling a lot with them. Geography on the road is the best way. What do you think, Aubrey? Yeah, well, this was before agriculture was ever a part of our life. <laughs> the traveling piece, which you know, I'm we were really strapped glad down. we got it in before we became stationary. Yeah. <laughs> planted. Yeah, planted, yeah. yeah. <laughs> we got rooted down. So, um, yeah, we, we just really, we took a year off. We moved to another country so they could learn another language. And I know you got to do what you got to do. It was an opportunity that we had, and we took it. And we had so much fun. And I could, I could tell you stories. We were going through pictures yesterday, and just the memories coming back. But we didn't start this way. No, no, no. We started we strapped started to the small. desk. <laughs> yeah, we started small. We started with the desk. We were strapped there. And, but God opened our, uh, my eyes, and, and he will work with you wherever you are. But starting small, if you can commit to whatever. Growing a tomato in your apartment porch or veranda you know you start small and then when you have success there you move to the next one into the next one and I can say that my kids don't regret ever being homeschooled in fact they've committed themselves to homeschool their kids someday I know this is not for everybody but for us it was awesome and the fact that I was able to enjoy them all this time and I still enjoy them uh, it's been a privilege and honor Yeah, I think the whole concept of starting small is so important, especially I think uh, the McGlovers were talking about this last night, about how the first time they came to Adagra, they felt they were drinking out of a fire hose. We right. were using that fire hose uh, concept when we were preparing for this presentation. It's like, yeah, you hear, you're here, you're learning so many things, and then, of course, we don't want to fail, but we feel like we're drinking out of a fire hose. I mean, if you're drinking out of a fire hose, you're only going to get flicks of water in your mouth because everything's going to be blowing your face off, right? Um, So starting small is so important. So here we are, four tools in. Expect failure. Don't ignore it. Engage it. Learn from others and start small. Okay, Okay, we're going to go our our last and fifth tool. What do I have? Oh, how ordinary. All right, our fifth tool, detach and reframe. And this, I think, is where it it starts coming all together because failure, when we experience failure, it can be a very difficult thing emotionally and mentally. Whether it's a large failure or whether it's a small failure, you know the feeling when you have done something wrong and you recognize it, or you've done something wrong and there's consequences, so you know you must have done something wrong. You know, you may not essentially recognize the cause and effect, but that feeling that you get inside and it starts flaring up and it, it can become consuming, that feeling when we experience failure. Right. And when that happens, it prevents us from being able to learn from it because we're so absorbed by these emotions and it clouds our judgment. In fact, that's what makes the airline industry unique. It's not a perfect industry. It's a human industry, so it's not going to be perfect. But the airline industry does everything it possibly can to avoid being so absorbed by the emotional element of failure that they can't learn from it. And they, 
it's so important that we do the same thing to be able to detach from, to be able to disconnect from that, that emotion that rises up within us and be able to step back and think, this is a failure, that means this is an opportunity. Remember, it's the ability to learn from our errors instead Amen. of being threatened by them. The word threatened is an emotional word, right? There's a proverb here that says, when pride comes, then comes shame, but with the humble is wisdom. That humility to be able to step back from our failure and detach and look at it and then reframe it and take it from being this negative emotional failure to this, it's a failure, that means I can learn from it. Amen. We, uh, one of the things that we do with our farm is we run an, an online market, which means that our customers order from us every week online and then we pack their orders and we take it to town and we have different pickup sites and they can either choose to pick it up or have it to us deliver it to our house and deliver it to their house yes and so part of the whole packing process requires that we get the orders done correctly because if it's not done correctly the customer doesn't get what they ordered or their bag is missing or there's so many different rooms for failures and I can tell you, I can't tell you, <laughs> the number of times that I'm, I run customer care for our farm that I was hearing, you know, I'm missing this product or I'm, you know, my bag isn't here or this and that and the other. And there's every time that failure happened, you get this feeling inside like, oh, you know, we did it again, we messed up, you know, and it becomes, <laughs> but I had to step back and go, okay, we failed, let me step back, let's adjust the system. Amen. Let's not just beat our heads over this. Let's not cast the blame. Oh, Alan! <laughs> Why was this not in the bag? <laughs> right, because that's the, other, that's the other side of failure. Either we get so absorbed by the feeling of that, that because that feeling, because those emotions are so uncomfortable, we look for somebody to blame. They call that a scapegoat. And it, when that does happen in the aviation industry, guess what happens? No progress? No progress. You guys remember the whole MAX 8 incident several years ago where these Boeing 737 MAX 8s were falling out of the sky. The first two times it happened, what were they saying? Pilot. Pilot error. Planes kept crashing because they looked for a scapegoat. Instead of doing what they do best, which is learn from their failures. Again, it's not a perfect it's not a perfect industry. But how many times do we look for scapegoats in our lives? Do we try to hide? Because whether it's conscious or unconscious, because that failure is so uncomfortable, can we detach and relearn? So the challenge that we are posing to you, the, the invitation that we are giving to you this morning, something that we've actually all become much more conscious of as we've been preparing for this presentation, is... We invite you to become black box thinkers. Amen. We invite you, let's see, I have, I think, whoa, can we, could you we get the slide right back up? And I want to go to that last slide. That whole idea of having the willingness and tenacity to investigate the lessons that exist when we fail. There's no virtue in failure. When we don't learn from our failure, it's a tragedy. Amen. Amen. But if we can learn from those failures, if we can step back, if we can expect it, if we don't ignore it, if we can learn from others, if we can start small, if we can step back, detach, and reframe. We've been giving you Proverbs with every single one of these tools because the entire book of Proverbs, try replacing the word instruction in the book of Proverbs with failure. Try replacing the word correction with failure. And all of a sudden, the book of Proverbs comes alive because you're like, this failure is one of the greatest teachers that we have. Mm. And we are going to fail left and right when we leave at Agra. We're going to fail today. How are we going to respond to that? Are we going to run from it? Are we going to blame someone else for it? Are we going to give up because of it? Or are we going to be black box thinkers? The wise, the, uh, King Solomon refers to these people as the wise people in the book of Proverbs because they're listening to counsel, they're listening to the rebukes of life, 
they're leaning into these experiences instead of hiding from them. So our invitation to you is to become a black box thinker, to have that willingness and tenacity to investigate the lessons that exist when we fail, learning from our errors rather than being threatened by them. Amen. Let's bow our heads as we close in prayer. Father in heaven, we are so thankful for how you treat us. You don't treat us the way we often treat each other. You don't look at us through the eyes of what's wrong with you. You look at us because you love us. You love us with an everlasting love. And I pray that we will be able to embrace, not the failure, but embrace the opportunity of our eyes being opened when we fail. When things go wrong, rather than self-deprecating, rather than beating ourselves up, may we turn our hearts to you and dig deeper yet to find the solutions to the things that may be repetitive for some of us, things that we haven't seemed to get right, that we will get close to you and allow you to teach us and train us and prepare us to live among the angels and with one another through life eternal. In Jesus Christ we pray. Amen. This media was brought to you by Audioverse, a website dedicated to spreading God's word through free sermon audio and much more. If you would like to know more about Audioverse or if you would like to listen to more sermons, please visit www.audioverse.org.